Good morning, Life Fellowship. My name is Andy Barker, and I serve as one of the elders here at Life. And you may have seen me up here before as I am occasionally given the opportunity to preach. And I'm always honored and humbled by the task. And I am especially so this morning because no book has impacted me more than the book of Galatians. So I am excited to unpack this passage with you this morning. But first, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the richness and depth of the truth in the passage that we have before us this morning is so far beyond what I can even comprehend. And so I ask for your help. God, through your spirit, I ask that you would press the greatness of what you have given us in the gospel deep into our hearts so that we are overwhelmed with your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, and let me start with just a quick refresher of the context of the book of Galatians. So Galatia was a region in modern-day Turkey where the Apostle Paul had planted a number of churches, and then after him, false teachers had come in, and they were saying that in order to be in right standing with God, Christians needed to follow the Old Testament law in addition to believing in Jesus. And so Paul wrote this letter to those churches to defend and clarify the gospel so that they would not be led astray. And starting in chapter 3, Paul has begun a series of arguments where he is showing how the Old Testament and the law fit together with the coming of Jesus to show that not only is the observance of the law unnecessary, but it is incompatible with faith in Jesus. This passage begins with an analogy to help us understand the gospel in relation to the law. And then Paul reveals two explosive realities of what we have as believers because of what Jesus has done for us. So as we work through this passage, I hope to show you that what God has graciously given us in the gospel is greater than anything we could ever attain or even imagine for ourselves. From the analogy itself, we will see that apart from the grace of the gospel, there is only slavery. And then out of that analogy, we will see the gracious gift of the gospel is our adoption as sons, and that as a son of God, you have an unimaginable inheritance. So let's begin by looking at Paul's analogy to see that apart from the grace of the gospel, there is only slavery. I'm going to read the passage again, but in order to retain how it connects with what came before it, I want to start in chapter 3, verse 26. So this is Galatians 3, 26 through 4, 7. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But... He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So in this passage, we saw the idea of believers as sons of God and heirs introduced in chapter 3, and then further developed through the analogy of chapter 4. And Galatians 4.1, Paul sets up the analogy like this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Now, when you hear slave, don't think of the slavery of our country's history. Roman slavery was quite different. In first century Rome, slavery was a pervasive cultural reality. And while there were certainly examples of harshness and brutality in the treatment of slaves, there was also many that were treated quite well. Slavery did not carry the same stigma for them as it does for us. But regardless, slavery is never a good thing. And the negative connotations associated with it are the very reason Paul references slavery in this analogy. A slave is one who is owned by another, and as a result has no rights and no privileges of their own. And this unenviable aspect of slavery is what Paul has in mind when he says that the child heir is no different from a slave. So the analogy calls to mind a young son in a wealthy home who will one day inherit everything. As long as he's a child, however, that inheritance is of no benefit to him, and he is under the control of others. In that sense, he is no different from a slave. Even though he is the owner of everything, as a child, he has no rights, no privileges, and no power to do anything on his own until the date set by his father. So the analogy has three components, the child heir, the experience as a slave, and the timing from the father. And each of these is worthy of reflection. So first, let's look at the child heir. In verse 3, Paul begins to apply this analogy to describe the experience of the Jewish people under the law before the coming of Christ. When he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children... Now, I say that this refers to Jewish people because in the final part of the analogy, in in verse 5, the reference to those who are under the law corresponds to this. In the Galatian churches that received this letter, there would have been Gentiles or non-Jewish Christians who came from a pagan background. And when they heard those who were under the law, they most certainly would not have thought of that as a reference to themselves, but as a reference to Jews. So in terms of the analogy, the child heir then is the Jewish people, those who were under the law. It was through the Jewish people that all of God's promises had come. So they are the child heir of the analogy. So let's now consider the experience as a slave. In verses 4 and 5, it says that God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. 
And this is the language of slavery. To redeem is to set free from the bonds of slavery. Before the coming of Christ, though God's people were owners of everything, their experience under the law is likened to being under guardians and managers so that they were no different from a slave. They lived under the law, heirs of all that God had promised, but not yet enjoying it. In verse 3, Paul says they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now this phrase, elementary principles of the world, has the idea of the basic elements or the building blocks of all that exists. But it also carries with it the idea of the spiritual powers at work in the world. And Paul uses the phrase again in verse 9. He is speaking of Gentile believers who are described in verse 8 as formerly enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then in verse 9 it says this, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? False teachers had come to these Galatian churches and were telling Gentile Christians that they needed to be circumcised and to observe certain laws in order to be in right standing with God. But these were not some man-made laws. These were laws that had been given by God himself through Moses. And here Paul is equating law-keeping with a return to the same spiritual bondage that these Gentile believers were under before their conversion. How can Paul say this? Paul is not saying that the law is bad, but that keeping the law in order to be right with God was never the intention of the law. The Galatian problem was their misuse of the law. God did not give the law so that his promises would be earned through law-keeping. When we approach God as if anything we do earns his promises, then we enslave ourselves and we cut ourselves off from whatever we hoped to gain. Now, what does all of this mean in our context, where no one is even thinking about Jews and Gentiles and circumcision. Don't let the fact that everything in this passage has a first century religious context make you think that this principle is outdated or that it only applies to religion. Religious or not, everyone has an idea of the good life, whether that be professional success, creating a more inclusive culture, or giving back, or fitness, or gender identity, or lake life, or relationships, or self-care. Everyone knows that something is not right and lives their lives for those things that they believe will make it better. Some are zealous with yard signs and t-shirts and activism, but some most are simply swept along by the stream of culture, unwittingly chasing what this world offers in hopes of attaining a greater measure of satisfaction. 
I grew up in Massachusetts. And so I am a longtime New England Patriots fan and a huge Tom Brady fan. I love Tom Brady for all the championships he brought to my team, and I love Tom Brady for giving the best illustration of the principle that nothing in this world can deliver on the promise of the good life. After one of his Super Bowl championships, and I don't remember which one, there's been so many, (laughs) but after winning a few of them, He was asked, which Super Bowl was the greatest? And this was his answer, the next one. Do you see it? Even when you get to the highest height of what you thought was the good life, it is never enough. All of your striving will only lead to more striving. No matter how far you go, all of your hopes for satisfaction will be only met with the need for more. This world only makes promises it cannot keep. And this pattern of striving and disappointment enslaves us. Whether it be religious performance or chasing after the world's promises, the result is the same, slavery. And the spiritual power behind it is captured in the words of 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The message that everyone in your life needs to hear is this. You cannot satisfy yourself. Everything your heart is longing for is only found in Jesus. Anything that you do that hinges on your own effort will only bring slavery. And your only hope for redemption is to stop striving and rest in what Jesus has done for you. And so in this, we see that apart from the grace of the gospel, there is only slavery. May God open the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty of this grace so that we might be a people who are so gripped by the goodness of the gospel that we are eager to share it with those around us who are hopelessly dejected by the disappointments of this world. Now, the last part of this analogy is the timing from the Father. Verse 4 contains a very pregnant phrase where it says, but when the fullness of time had come. Now, there's much that could be said about this, but I'm actually going to skip over it this morning. So we have a devotional team Uh, here at Life, where each week someone from the church writes a devotional on the passage that was preached. And I'm actually on that devotional team, and this week happens to be my week. I thought about switching with someone for the week, but I decided that since there's always so much more that could be said than can be said on a Sunday morning, that I could just take something that didn't make it into the the message and, and make it a devotional. And so I'm gonna skip this part this morning, but if you're interested in reading a reflection On the phrase, but when the fullness of time had come, be on the lookout for this week's devotional. So let's transition now to see that the gracious gift of the gospel is our adoption as sons. Look again at verses four through six. 
It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, I mentioned before that Paul's analogy of the child heir was a description of the Jewish experience under the law before the coming of Christ. Now, full disclosure, not everyone reads it that way. But I will share with you how I'm reading it, and then you can decide for yourself. So when you consider that that Paul's original Gentile readers were never under the law, and when you consider that everyone in this room was never under the law, I think it makes sense to read those who were under the law as a reference to Jews specifically. So in verse 5, Paul says, God sent Jesus to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And now I'm reading this as a reference to Jews. Formerly, they were as slaves under the law, but now they are redeemed out from under the law and have been adopted as sons. So when Paul says, so that we might receive adoptions as sons, he's referring to himself as a Jew and his fellow Jews. And then in the next verse, notice that the pronouns shift, where he says, and because you are sons. In this, he's talking to the Gentiles, to those who were not under the law. He's saying, saying, we Jews, we have received adoption as sons, and you Gentiles are also adopted as sons. You've received the very same thing. And then in the next verse, he says, of all who are in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Here's why this matters. If Jesus has redeemed the Jews out from under the law so that they are now adopted as sons, And if Gentiles are redeemed from their slavery to pagan gods so that they too are also adopted as sons of gods, why would they now put themselves under the law? Jesus redeemed the Jews from the law and they now have something infinitely better. And Gentiles have it too. If you are sons, why would you go back to slavery. Now, regardless of whether or not you read this with this Jew-Gentile distinction, the point remains, what we have in Christ is infinitely better than what we could ever attain for ourselves. Christian, the more you know the fullness of what you have in Christ, the weaker the pull of whatever would threaten to enslave you by calling you to rely on your own effort. There is no need to strive for anything when you realize that you already have everything. And we can have this confidence when we understand that in Christ we have the security of sonship and we have unhindered access to the Father. First, let's look at how our adoption as sons brings the security of sonship. 
A dominant image in this passage is that of slavery. But notice that for Paul, the opposite of slavery is not freedom, but sonship. Our adoption out of slavery severs the power of whatever would threaten to enslave us and brings us into an inseverable relationship with God as sons. It would be hard to overestimate the significance of the infinite God of the universe choosing to bring us into relationship with himself where he is our father and we are his sons. I remember when my wife, Melanie, was pregnant with our oldest, Micah. Throughout her pregnancy, I felt no connection to my unborn son. And we had a cat at the time, and I loved that cat. And I was honestly afraid. When my son is born, what if I still don't feel a connection? What if I love my cat more than my son? I wanted to love my son, but I couldn't just conjure up that feeling for someone I hadn't yet met. But I still remember the, how overwhelming it was in the moment that Micah was born. The only way I could describe it is that it felt like God poured a bucket of love into my heart, and I was overtaken by this enormous sense of adoration and love, unlike anything I had ever felt. That is the love of a father. And why do we think that God's love for us is anything less than that? God is love, and it is by his design that the love of parents for their children exists that we might catch a glimpse of the love of God for those he has adopted as sons. Anytime you see the mother of a newborn filled with joy at the preciousness of her child, this is a glimpse of the heart of God who delights in us. Psalm 147, 11. Anytime you see a father swoop in to comfort his injured child and wipe away their tears, this is a glimpse of the heart of God who longs to take away our suffering and wipe away our tears. Isaiah 25, 8. Anytime you see a parent's anger melt at the unprovoked confession of a child, this is a glimpse of the heart of God who longs to have compassion on us. Isaiah 30, 18. Notice those were all Old Testament references. God has not changed. This is God's heart for his people from the very beginning. However, there is something that has changed. It is not until Christ's work of redemption was complete that we are able to experience that reality. It is only because of Jesus that we are adopted as sons of God and have the indwelling spirit of God. And so the New Testament explodes with promises that speak of the unbreakable bond we have with God because he is a good and loving father who puts earthly parents to shame. Even though there are fathers who have abandoned their children, we have the promise from God our Father, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. 
And even though there are fathers who fail to provide for their children, we have the promise that God our Father will not hold back, but will graciously give us all things. Romans 8.32 Even though there are fathers who, whose hearts grow cold toward their children and only express disappointment in them, we have the promise from God our Father that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 This and so much more is what it looks like to be securely in the grip of the strong hand of God because we have been adopted as his sons. With God as our father, we have the security of sonship. And once we're brought into his home, we always have the confidence that we belong to him. But more than that, by the indwelling spirit of the son, we have unhindered access to the Father. By the Spirit, we always have the confidence that we can come to the Father. Romans, I mean, Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And Romans 8, 15 is very similar, where it says, You have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In both passages, we see adoption, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the cry of Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic word for father, and I'm sure that many many of you have heard it said that Abba is the equivalent of daddy. And this can be a helpful way of understanding it to the extent that it reflects the intimacy, confidence, and access we have in relation to God as Father. However, to whatever extent viewing God as daddy leads to an approach where we are informal and casual with God, I don't find it helpful. The point is not that God is our pal. This is a very unique address for God that is only used one other time in Scripture. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus himself addresses God as Abba Father as he is greatly distressed and troubled, praying in the garden on the night before his crucifixion. So what is of utmost significance in this cry of Abba Father is that we are brought into the fellowship of the Trinity such that we now address God the Father in the same way as the Son of God by the work of the Spirit of God within us. The point is that because of the Son of God and the Spirit of God, we have the same confidence in our access to the Father as Jesus does. Tim Keller was a pastor and author who passed away just last week. His ministry has been very influential in my life, and as I prepared this message, I had to resist the urge to fill it with quotes from him. But here is just one. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. This is the idea of Abba Father. It's less about being casual and more about being confident. It's less about informality and more about father-son intimacy. When we come to God, we know we have his ear and that he cares. I also want to point out that in both Galatians 4 and in Romans 8, 
Abba, Father, is not something we say, but it's something we cry. In Galatians, it says God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In Romans, it says you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In both cases, the word translated cry or crying is the Greek word krazo. And this verb occurs 55 times in the New Testament, and it is always loud, intense, and filled with emotion. Here are some examples. It is the cry of demons to Jesus. What have you to do with us? It is the cry of crucify him when Jesus stood trial before Pilate. It is the cry of Jesus as he gave up his spirit on the cross. It is the cry of away with him by an angry mob trying to kill Paul. It is the cry of Hosanna to Jesus on Palm Sunday. It is the cry of Peter to Jesus, Lord, save me, when he began to sink after walking on water. It is the cry of the blind man to Jesus, have mercy on me. It is Jesus crying out to the crowd, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And it is the cry of the Holy Spirit within us to Abba, Father. A little over 10 years ago, I went on a bike ride through my neighborhood with my three oldest kids. Micah was eight, Noah was seven, and Mia was almost six. And as we came to the top of a hill, Noah and Mia began to race down the other side. And Mia's competitive spirit, um, competitive spirit and gravity were working together to bring her to speeds that were beyond her bike riding skill level. All I could do was watch, and then it happened. At first, it was a little handlebar wiggle, and then Mia attempted to level it out and overcorrected to the right and then panicked and overcorrected even more to the left. The wheel turned and got caught in the pavement. Her momentum propelled her up off the seat, and she came crashing down on the bike and then landed lip first on the pavement. When I got her home and cleaned her up, it was clear that her lip was going to need stitches, and I left right away to get Mia to the hospital, and Melanie got her mom to watch the other kids, and then she met us there. So on the way to the hospital, it was just me and Mia. She was scared, and the whole time, she was just crying out, Daddy, I love you. I love you so much. Thank you for taking care of me, Daddy. I love you. And I'm pretty sure that I was a little teary-eyed myself, but I just reached my hand into the back seat to hold her hand as we drove to the hospital. And in that moment... I remember being struck by how in the midst of her pain and fear, she was comforted knowing that I was with her and that I was taking care of her. When we got to a room in the ER, ER, we had no idea what we were in for. To prepare Mia for stitches, a nurse very discreetly had Mia slide her arms into a pillowcase so that her arms would be stuck behind her back so she'd be unable to lift them up to her face as they put in the stitches. And after applying some numbing medicine, the doctor attempted to stitch Mia's lip, but every time the, lip, the needle touched her lip, she screamed. There was a nurse holding her head. Her arms were pillowcased behind her back, and she was screaming through it all like she was being tortured. That was the most harrowing experience of my life, and I felt so utterly helpless. And there is nothing like the painful ache of having to watch your child suffer when there's nothing you can do about it. In that moment, 
I was reminded of what Mia had taught me in the ride to the hospital. In the midst of her pain and fear, she was comforted knowing that her father was with her and was taking care of her. As I knelt beside Mia's bed, I realized that the roles were now switched. I was no longer the father. I was the child in pain and in fear, needing the comfort of a father who is with me and takes care of me. In that moment, as I held onto Mia's leg as she screamed, I buried my head in the sheets of her bed, and the cry of my heart was the cry of Abba Father. Thank you, Father, that just as my daughter was comforted by my presence, I have the confidence and comfort of your presence with me. The prayer of Abba Father is so much more than a casual chat with Daddy. It is a visceral cry of the heart to the transcendent God who has brought us near to himself by adopting us as his own sons and giving us his spirit so that we have such confidence in his closeness and care for us that we approach him in the same way as Jesus himself. The gracious gift of the gospel is our adoption as sons. It is more privileged, is more undeserved than we're willing to admit. It's more needed than we know, and it is more privileged than we dare presume. But there's more than that. As a son of God, you have an unimaginable inheritance. As Pastor Ben mentioned last week, it is significant that throughout this section, believers are called sons of God. In ancient cultures, daughters did not have an inheritance. So by calling everyone sons, Paul is emphasizing that all who are in Christ, both men and women, have an inheritance. And in this final verse of the passage this morning, we return to the imagery of the heir. Galatians 4.7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This verse focuses and expands what has already been said. First of all, notice the subtle shift in pronouns. They're now singular. The focus, this focuses the application of this truth to the individual. In verse 6, it was you are sons, plural. But in verse 7, it is you are a son, singular. We are not anonymous parts of the collective church. Rather, we are a collection of individual souls that have each been personally redeemed and adopted as sons into the family of God through faith in Christ. And then lastly, this verse expands the idea of being an heir. In chapter 3, Paul showed that in Christ we are heirs of what was promised to Abraham. But in today's passage, Paul argues that we are not only Abraham's offspring, you are a son of God, which makes you the heir of a better inheritance. If you know your Bible, you know there's great theological significance to being Abraham's offspring. But you don't need to know much about the Bible to know that it is infinitely greater to be a son of God. As a son of Abraham, you are an heir of all that God promised to Abraham. But as a son of God, you have an inheritance that awaits you that is expanded to something that is infinitely greater than what was promised to Abraham. 
In Galatians 5.21, Paul speaks of this inheritance being the kingdom of God. And just listen to how these passages describe the inheritance we have in Christ. In Matthew 5.5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, I mean, 1 Peter 1.4 says, You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And Romans 8, 16 to 18 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And lastly, Paul addresses divisions in the church where believers were separating from each other based on their alignment to their favorite Christian leader to show the foolishness of these divisions. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 3.21 to 23. He says, so let no one boast in men. Why? For For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Putting it all together, we could say that by his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has earned the right to inherit everything. And the free gift of the gospel is that by faith, we are adopted as sons of God so that we are heirs with Jesus, and stand to inherit everything with him. We are fellow heirs with Christ. All that belongs to Christ will belong to us as well. I cannot even fathom what that means. It is so far beyond what we can imagine that the glory of what is to come will make our sufferings seem like nothing in comparison. As a son of God, you have an unimaginable inheritance. So now, what are we to do with this? What should our response be? We could talk about the effect of the Spirit in our lives, walking by the Spirit who produces the fruit of the Spirit in us, and how love fulfills the whole law. All of this is how Paul applies these truths in the last two chapters of Galatians. But that's not what's in this passage. And we run the risk of short-circuiting the fullness of this passage if we jump too quickly to what we must do with it. So this passage stands alone with compelling imagery of the fullness of what we have in the gospel with the implication that it is fruitless and foolish to seek anything else in reliance on our own efforts. So God has graciously given us this great gift in what is the greatest thing we can do in response. When you give a gift, what do you hope from the person who receives it? Do you want them to show their appreciation by giving you a gift in return? Or do you want them to do things for you to prove that they are, you are, they are worthy of the gift? No. We don't give a gift to indebt others to ourselves. We do not seek repayment, and any repayment, any attempt to repay, would spoil it. 
So if not repayment, what then do you want when you give a gift? Some might say gratitude, and that would be a step in the right direction. A heartfelt thank you honors the gift for what it is. But I would suggest that there's something better. When we give a gift, the greatest thing the the receiver can do is this. Enjoy the gift. There is no greater hope in a gift purely given than the hope that it will bring joy to its recipient. And so it is with the gospel. Any proper response to the gospel starts with our hearts being glad in God for the greatness of the gift he has given us in Christ. So this is my only application for us this morning. Feed your joy in God for what he has graciously given you in Christ. I said at the start that I wanted to show you from this passage that what God has graciously given us in the gospel is greater than anything we could ever attain or even imagine for ourselves. If this is true, then it should bring a contented end to all our striving and bring us to a place of joy and rest in the goodness and fullness of what we have in Christ. To whatever extent this is or isn't already true of you, pray for God to open your eyes to see the greatness of what we have in Christ. Take time to meditate on Scripture to see the fullness of what we have in Christ. And surround yourself with others who walk in joy because of what we have in Christ.